this time and turn, if you would, with me to Jonah, the book of Jonah. Mr. Gaiman just told us that we were talking, we showed that we were talking about Nineveh and how wicked it was. All right, I think we're there. How wicked it was, how horrible it was. And Nahum is talking about about a hundred years later, after there's been a civil war, after Nineveh, by the way, is building this monstrosity, and you will see it. It's actually in a British museum. Uh, a picture of it is in. And uh, it's unbelievable how that, after they repented, if you will, this, this, this huge economic boom took place. Go figure. <laughs> and the city is, is beautiful. And like I said, I'll show you a picture. Matter of fact, it's many times recognized as similar to Egypt and all the canals and beautiful uh, uh, temples and pyramids and all that was going... Assyria was much like that, and Nineveh, although Nineveh wasn't the capital city of Assyria all the time, it became the capital city, and I think one of the reasons was, and to be honest with you, this is what I believe, I truly believe that they truly did repent, and God blessed them, but they went right back to their wicked ways within a hundred years. That's about two generations. I'm glad America doesn't have that problem. Although we are going to see today the wickedness of depravity on display, America is not very far behind. And the reality is, folks, we don't win this battle on the earth. Christ wins it when he comes again. And our home is that, and our peace and our joy is because of the mercy and grace of God, because he gives us Christ forever. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Amen? He is our peace. He is our refuge. And unfortunately, when you look at the second and third generation of many Christians, we see shipwrecks. Very similar. Jonah's no different with Nineveh. We've talked about Jonah. I'm going to quickly go through this. You know, I was told if you do it really fast, your subconscious picks it up, and so you're good. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Matter of fact, I'll just be transparent with you, and I think it's bad and wrong. In seminary, they actually have rules of how fast you can, you can listen to a book you're required to read in order for credit. That's a problem. I, no wonder theology is not being preached in our churches.
Jonah's theology that we're going to see in the text and we're going to see from verses 1, 2, and 3 is how divine mercy and divine justice interact without canceling out each other. And by the way, they have in every one of our lives if we're born again. How do God's universal sovereignty and His particular covenant with Israel interact without canceling out each other? And we will see that also. Actually, God will use and if, will use a wicked, horrible city to judge Israel. And just so you get the big picture, since we read it already this morning, Mr. Gaiman read it, the big picture is this. Israel, at this moment in history, in Jonah's history, was wicked, horrible, and yet God still blessed them and made them as big as Solomon's, as, as far as Solomon's reach was, so was Israel's reach during the time of Jonah. But yet they were wicked. The king was wicked. The people were wicked. It was horrible. And what does God do? He takes a prophet from Israel to go to another wicked city named Nineveh in order to preach repentance. And we all know that happens, right? He gets thrown up on a beach. He gets over there, God tells them what to say. He tells them to repent or God's going to destroy them. And what do they do? They repent. And during the time of their repent, at the time of their repentance, from that moment till the time they get destroyed, God uses them to go and destroy Israel to judge them. So God takes a wicked country, they repent. God uses that wicked country to judge the Israel, the wicked country. And by the way, Israel has never gone back. They have been dispersed and they're gone. Now, Judah and gets taken also. And by the way, here's God in his infinite mercy. Uh, uh, your brother Israel has just been taken because of their wickedness. Hello? Oh, yeah, that's not us. Babylon, 100 to 200 years later, same thing happens. They, Judah is wicked. God sends the Babylonians, who had just destroyed the Assyrians, and takes Judah into captivity. They're into captivity for decades, and then they start sending them back to Judah, to Israel, if you will. That's the big picture. How many get that big picture? All right. Last week, we talked about what Jeremiah did when they were in captivity. By the way, he's, he's a captivity prophet is what he is. And we read responsibly to that text. <clears throat> now, again, I, we, we've gone through this. It's been two weeks since we've gone through it, so I needed to bring you up to up to where we're at today. So this is the time of the divided kingdom. Israel is in the north. They get defeated by Assyria. They take them. They spread them all over the world. Israel never comes back. The southern kingdom, within uh, a couple hundred years, 580 CBC, they, they uh, are taken captive by Babylon. And then they get thrown. Uh, uh, that's when Ezra is let back, Jeremiah like is let back, where we can see the walls being rebuilt, the temple being rebuilt. And one of my favorite passages is, is with Ezra 
So Israel has now come back after Babylon had, been, had taken Israel captive, and Jerusalem specifically. And they find the book of the law. As they're combing through the rubble, they find the book of the law. What is that? The Bible, okay. Ezra stands in front of them. It's, this is in Nehemiah chapter 6 or 8, I think. And he reads the text. He explains the text. And what do the people do? But basically, he preached an expository message. Amen? And what happened? All of Israel repented. Sackcloth and ashes. God wants broken people willing to obey Him faithfully. And if you don't want to do that and you're His child, you will be broken. And if God never comes back to break you or turn you, you had better check your salvation. Jonah is such a case. What's going on here is we will see... I should use the pointer instead on here. This is Jerusalem. This is Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the southern Judah. That is their capital. How many understand that? That we're taken in 587 to Babylon. You have Israel. Israel is up here in the northern part. Their capital is what? Anybody know? It's not Jerusalem because that's Judah's. They're a divided kingdom. Their capital is Samaria, just north of Jerusalem. You remember the Samaritan woman, all right? That's where their capital is. Assyria is up here. Nineveh is up here. Do you see that? That's Nineveh. We'll have better pictures for you later that are really important, but they come down, they've been coming down, the Assyrians have been coming down and attacking the outskirts of Israel for a long time, probing, if you will. They would massacre people on the edges. This is the place Jonah is told by God, go tell them to repent. How many feel a little bad for Jonah, in a sense? So you have Assyria coming, and, and, and that's what they're doing. And then eventually, Nineveh comes down, destroys them, and hauls off their people, and they spread them all over, or torture them and kill them. <clears throat> We've seen the providence of God. We're going to be talking about that next Sunday morning in our CE hour. The providence of God is... He wants to show people He is a righteous God, a just God that is full of mercy. That's exactly what He's doing with Nineveh. It's exactly what He's going to do with Judah. It's exactly what He does with our lives, to be honest with you. When we go astray, God says, stop it. Amen? Now, He doesn't say that audibly. But we find it in His Word over and over and over again. And by the way, when, you're, when you feel bad about your sin, when you know that, hey, this is a problem, that's God saying, stop it. He affects your life. 
And in this sense, we're going to find that Assyria, that wicked city, is used to conquer Israel for their wickedness. And then Babylon is going to conquer Assyria for their wickedness. And then Judah is going to be conquered by Babylon for their wickedness. And Babylon is going to be conquered by Persia for their wickedness. And Greece is going to conquer Persia because of their wickedness. And Rome is going to conquer Greece for... Hello? We could keep going all the way down to 2023, and you might want to put a different name in there. It's only a matter of time if we don't stop the nonsense in this country and repent and turn from our wicked ways and embrace God our Father. We find that in 2 Chronicles. Jonah chapter 1, that sets up where we're at this morning. I told you we would get to the text of the word today. We are. Woohoo, I'm excited. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarsus from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarsus, paid the fare, and went down into it to go to them to Tarsus from the presence of the Lord. <coughs> we're going to be preaching verses 1 through 3 and give you some idea of one of some of these words and, and these countries and what they are, what they were doing, what's going on here, and the text sets it up very, very well. It's interesting, the first thing we find, the Bible says, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. So, we have Jonah he introduces a surprising commission. You can go to any Old Testament prophets you want. It doesn't start out this way. Eventually, in the text, it does, but it doesn't start this way in any of the prophets. It does in Jonah. It's like this one-off. How many understand that? It's unique. It's different. God says to Jonah, get up. By the way, he tells us every morning, get up. Amen. You know, 12 o'clock is not a good time to be sleeping from all the way last night. Nothing good comes out of laziness. That's not why he says, arise. But he says, hey, I've got a job for you. I've got a job for you. He's already done a job for Jeroboam II. <coughs> he prophesied that Israel would expand their kingdom as far as Solomon. And guess what? It happened. He's already done that. He loved that job. But now he's given a different job. His job is to rise and to go to Nineveh. Ugh. The book of Jonah opens with the praise. What? Verse 1. I think it's important. Look at it says. The word of God. Now here's... I, this is very interesting to me. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city of God. Jonah rose up to flee to Tarsus from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, found a ship. Got... Does Jonah say anything back to God in this text that we see? He doesn't. He doesn't say anything that we know of by, hang on, 
<clears throat> wait till we get to chapter 4. But for right now, the author, who is God, via Jonah, amen, doesn't say anything that he said. All it's focused on is one thing. What is it? This is the word of God. By the way, nothing of our voices matter compared to that. The word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the dividing the slender of his soul and spirit. Amen. It is the thing. It is the most important thing. Your opinion don't matter. God's word, it is king. There's nothing greater, nothing more important. And I really believe that's the whole focus. That's why he doesn't talk about what he said or didn't say. It's silent. It's focusing on the Word of God. By the way, do we have a commission from the Word of God as believers? Yes or no? Is he saying basically the same thing? Arise, serve, love, proclaim the gospel. Yes or no? Absolutely he is. Are we deaf or are we selfish? That's the question. Jonah, the other thing, the other reason we don't hear what he says during this time, it's as if he doesn't say anything, is because the motivations are endless, are they not, of why he did not go, why he went the other way. So, only the book of Jonah does this phrase stand in the beginning of the book, arise. Because this is, many people call this a narrative. And I want to I push back on that a little bit. A narrative sets the historical record up. It sets the geographical record up. It sets... All these things up, it tells you who the people were, what they did. All that stuff is there in the narrative. It's telling a story. This is an actual story. But I believe wholeheartedly, if there were a genre other than narrative, one called a sermon by Jonah, <laughs> I really believe that's what this is. I really believe it because none of that narrative is set up like normal. It's like he's preaching, this is what I did, and oh, was it wrong. Oh, was it wrong. The negative we can see in the uniqueness of starting of Jonah is that we, we don't get, we, people don't know when Jonah actually happened. That's why we struggled with the, within 50 years. It's tough to know because none of that was set up. We know that he lived during Jeroboam's time. We know that he went to Nineveh and there was a, a repentance that took place. The year is questionable. We know it's in the, uh, the 700s, which would make it the 8th century, correct? We know that, but apart from that, that's a lot of time. That's 100 years. So, despite the negatives that we don't get from the book... There are also some positives. And the big positive is the unique introduction focuses our intention on the Word of God. And here's what's so awesome. 
Jonah had very little of the Word of God. You have the whole of the Word of God that he wants you to have. You have so much more than Jonah. The Word of the Lord. That's the focus. We are confronted with challenging word from Yahweh and perhaps senses some of Jonah's surprise at God's unexpected and frankly unwelcomed commission. You want me to go where and do what? How many could hear him say that? Well, by the end of this sermon, you will say, ah, I can sympathize emotionally with Jonah. And we will see what Nineveh was like. <clears throat> so as I said before, this is the second time Jonah that we know that Jonah was given a word from God. The first one was good towards his country. The second one is this one, which is bad towards his country. This is very different than before. Instead of God's blessing Israel, God now calls on Jonah to preach repentance to Israel's enemies. By the way, the word of God comes to Jonah twice in the first three chapters. If you would look at chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, almost verbatim, not quite, but almost verbatim, chapter 3, 1 through 3 is the same thing. Yahweh reissues the commission that Jonah initially disobeyed. Young blood calls these two commands of God as pillars for the book's structure. One is this one. The Word of God came to Jonah. This is what he did with it. In chapter 3, the Word of God came to Jonah again, and he reluctantly obeyed. Why is it that Scripture records no reply from Jonah's mouth in these early verses? I think it's because the, the author wants us to focus on God's Word, His mercy, His grace, and his sovereign plan. And he wants that to be front and center. He also wants us to see the disobedience of his follower, of his follower will demand correction, judgment, and discipline of an unruly follower. To name a few, God's perfect attributes are on display. His character is on public display. Although some call this book in the genre of a narrative, I would describe it a sermon. If Jonah really wrote it, and I believe he did, this could be a sermon on who God is and what he demands crouched in a historical event, and I totally believe that. It explains to the readers the fickleness of man. Praise God, we Christians are not fickle. We always faithfully obey God in every aspect of our lives. True? But he explains the, to the reader the fickleness of man, even a God-fearing man who chooses blatantly disobey God's choice. And in the end, he pouts and in a sense is angry with God. Yet on the flip side, the sermon expresses how sovereign, faithful, merciful, gracious, and unchanging God is in his dealings with humanity. And that should be a hearty amen to every one of those. One I didn't put in there is his long-suffering. Praise God for his long-suffering. There certainly is much we can learn and stand in awe of how great of God Yahweh truly is. 
and how selfish, stubborn, and wicked we can act. The unchanging of God is on full display. For instance, it is as if God in chapter 3 repeats almost exactly what Jonah 1 says, in, what Jonah in chapter 1 says. It almost as, God's, is almost as if God says, Jonah, I told you what to do and where to go. Let me remind you what I said. God then tells Jonah to go, and God will give him the words to preach. This time it's different only in one way. He rose up and he went. So chapter 1, verse 1, talks about this man right away called Amittai. Amittai. Like Jonah, the book of Jonah places the divine, the, the divine word at the forefront. Immediately the reader, like Jonah, is confront, confronted with this challenging message from God. He says, the word of God, what? It came. This is a statement of fact. The form of the verb is to be. It is frequently used in the Hebrew narrative to mark the onset of a new episode within a story. Although this is the whole story that we have. This term highlights the sudden and unexpected nature of the commission. Yahweh's word comes without warning and it launches, journey, and it launches a journey Jonah never expected. The phrase, the word of the Lord, introduces an oracle that the prophet is con to convey on God's behalf to a particular audience. Usually that audience is the people of Israel. Not now. Now this is the Gentile, but only worse than Gentile. These are the wicked, horrible, nasty Gentiles who are enemies of Israel, and God wants to make them repent. And we know God, He's merciful, He's just, He's going he's gonna to give them a heart of repentance. And I don't want that because they're my enemy. I hate them. How many get it? God's commission to Jonah uses imperatives rather than a narrative. These commissions, these imperatives are the backbone of the communication between God and Jonah. By the way, we have the same thing. Be not of the world. Be ye holy. These are commissions, these are imperatives from God. This time he says arise. And not only arise, go. Not only go, but condemn. Go at once to Nineveh. That is the best way to explain what God is dictating in this text. But I want to share with you what he actually does. I've got these things written down, and I think it's very important that we follow this. This is in the English. I am not a Hebrew scholar. That guy left last, uh, yes, uh, last week. <laughs> he left Friday. I am not that Hebrew scholar, but I will tell you, in my studies in the Hebrew, the English does a good job with these words, but look at the words and how interesting they are. The text says that Jonah was to do what? What's the word here in red? Arise, three of you can read that, good. 
Arise, right? That's the command. Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it. For their wickedness, Nineveh's wickedness has what? Come up before me. Jonah, get up out of your chair and go do some work. Because this wicked nonsense is blasphemous and it's in my face. It's come up before me. But Jonah rose up. To do what? Nineveh's wickedness was in the face of God. I hate you, God. Jonah's wickedness was the same thing. Look what the words. Rose up, come up. Are they basically synonymous? Jonas blasphemed God that said, turned his back and went the other way. Exact thing. To do what? To flee to Tarsus from the presence of God. What does God call Jonah to do? What's the red word? Okay, we got a few of you left to say it. It's going to come up again. Because this is so important. Arise. So what does he do? What is the opposite of rise? He does the exact opposite. He goes down. And he found a ship. which was going to Tarsus. Paid the fare. And then, then he did. What's the word? The red word up there that he was commanded to do by God? What did he do? Went down. Do you see what he did? Well, that, if he was today, he'd be a bad Christian. You think? How many of us have a text full of commands by God that we'd literally turn our backs on? Either because we're too interested in self-preservation or we're too interested and too in love with ourselves. Isn't it great that Americans aren't in love with themselves? It is a constant problem, amen? And it's a constant and consistent problem within Christianity. And we'll get to that eventually. So, how many think that's so interesting the way it's written in the text? It's like the exact opposite. Arise, go to where? <clears throat> go to Nineveh. So, the first problem is, how many of you know everything about Nineveh? How many know anything about Nineveh? <laughs> what is Nineveh, right? That's the first thing. Let's find out. Okay, why was, and the question could be it this way, why was Noah so not wanting to go to Nineveh? Why was that? Well, this morning I'd like to share with you what Nineveh was like. Does that look like Nirvana? Nirvana? Beautiful? I, I mean, who would ever thought that would be 7th and 8th century BC? It was. Is that a pretty wow city? This, by the way, this, 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 I'm going to say it this way. This Polaroid photograph, no, 
This art is found in the British Museum. They truly believe Assyria being thousands of years old, like 1700 B.C., just old. This is what they have come to. It's a beautiful city. It's a gorgeous city. But what's unique about this is this is a 7th century idea of what it looked like. What happened in the 8th century in Nineveh? Jonah came, preached repentance, and they repented. I find that interesting. Today, you can actually see the city walls. I love archaeology. How many like archaeology? By the way, archaeology is why people in America doubt the Bible. Because they listen to someone from Jordan who loves the Bible and tells them it's all a fraud and they swallow it hook, line, and sinker. I'm telling you the truth. The Queen of Jordan was her name. And they said, I will give you an example. The Queen of Jordan, who was an archaeologist from the United States, went to Jordan and dug up Jericho. Jericho is in Jordan. You have to have permits from Jordan. Jordan is Islamic. Hates anything that's Hebraic. Are you following me? In order to get permits, you have to do certain things. Not really trust the Bible is one of them. She goes in, she digs. After three other people have dug Jericho and found evidence of biblical proportions directly from the Bible, evidence in the soil. The Italians, the Germans, and there was one more, and I can't remember who it was. All of them found it. She came in. Nope, there's nothing here. The Bible is a fraud. That gets put in a journal. The journal gets read in the United States. Oh, look at the science. It's all a fraud. Huh, Christianity's a fraud. Do you see the leap? That's exactly what has happened, by the way. Our church has taken a archaeology class from a a known archaeologist, which I won't give his name. I can tell you the name on the side, but I don't want anybody, I don't want to pronounce it, get it out there. Here's what he did. He said, I'm going to figure this out. So he goes in to Jericho in the dark night with three other guys. They dig and they take stuff from Jericho. How many think that's a really bad idea? It is. He goes to the to Jericho's uh, head official of archaeology. And he throws all that he found, the pottery he found that night. He says, now tell me, what date is this? The archaeologist looks at him. He knows him. Where'd you get this? I'm not telling you. I'm not going to date it then. So it goes back and forth, right? Finally, he said, okay, it's from Jericho. Out of the head of archaeology in in Jordan, he says this. He doesn't say it word for word, but in essence, he said, this dates at this time, which is exactly what your Bible says. 
He said, really? This is from who? The problem is Jordan wants to make money, just like Israel's making on tourists coming to see archaeology sites. I'm going to get this. In order to make money, this guy is trying to befriend him and show him, I can open this up and there'll be thousands of Christians come in here and see this and you can make a lot of money. He still hasn't got his permit yet. <laughs> but the reality is, archaeology is great in the hands of honest people. It is the death nail in the hands of liars. How many understand? Let me show you what happens. Do you see this right here? And you can tell this has all been excavated. Do you see that? Because the, the hill was be like that. How many understand that? This is called a tell. A tell is, you know, how, how rich of environment it is in the Mideast, especially in Iraq. And it's full of palm trees and beautiful wet grass. And, and is that true? It's mostly a what? Desert blows what? Sand piles up where? Where it stops and they it forms over time a hill. You can see them all the way over in Middle East everywhere. So this hill literally has been dug, this tell, and you can see the remains, and actually they restructured it. They took the stones that had fallen and put it back up, and they have made the actual walls of Nineveh. How many think that's cool? Pretty awesome. We can see Nineveh like it was back then. Now, this is all erected on top and is their um, tourists' information area. But the point is, Nineveh is a real city in a real place, and Noah went to it to preach repentance, and they repented. Amen? Jonah? Did I say Noah? Oh, boy. You know, he was a little old then. <laughs> okay. This is important. Assyria, basically at this time, owns all of this and more. And they're attacking Israel right here, constantly. Nineveh is not their capital city. Nineveh is a great city. It's a big city and it has multiple suburbs to make it a huge city. But it is not the capital at that time. Be careful when you read, there are many commentators that say, yeah, Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. It was the capital at one time, after Jonah was there, not during. Regardless, this is where it's at. Now, put in, this is ancient, 1700 BC, Assyria lived. How do you think, what other great country in the world is way early B.C. Is Egypt? Yes or no? Yeah. How did Egypt tell their story? What did they use? <laughs> a tablet? <laughs> it's called cuneiform on a tablet. 
a little different than what our tablets, right? They would etch it in the stone. So we have the history of Nineveh written on stone. How many think that is awesome to find what Nineveh was like? What a great thing. So Nineveh also has a history in Scripture. The first, the Scriptures, here's, here's what it was. I'm going to get down to it. The tradition regarding Nineveh's origin, the starting of it, is recorded in Genesis 10, 11. Consequently, Jonah's is like, yeah, I know this country, this city. It has been a wicked city its whole life. Why? Because the text says this. From the land, Ashur emerged and built Nineveh, that is the broadest city, and Kela, as well as Rezin between Nineveh and Kela, which is the capital city. Interesting, Nineveh heads the list of cities attributed to Assyrian's ancestor, Asher, which implies that Nineveh was the first of the great cities on which Assyria was founded on. Nineveh was closely associated with the origins of Assyria as a nation and frequently served to represent Assyria as a whole, as well as Assyrian ideals, imperial expansion, national pride, and indiscriminate use of power. Now, Assyria was a constant pain to Israel, constantly probing the might of Israel's army on the outskirts of Israel's domain. No wonder Jonah was not so keen on going to the greatest cities of, to proclaim God's word, believing God would certainly forgive and grant mercy. Mercy was the last thing Jonah was interested in seeing because they were the greatest threat to Israel's sovereignty. Death and annihilation is what Jonah wanted Nineveh to experience. But it only gets worse. Nineveh is associated with a man you might have heard before. How many have ever heard of Nimrod? That godly person. A hunter of men who oppose God in every aspect. Therein is the origins of Nineveh. If you're a biblical scholar and you hear God say, go to Nimrod city of Nineveh and preach repentance, how happy would you be? That's the commission. Yahweh's charge to Jonah to travel to Nineveh is rich with symbolism of Assyria's origin and her reputation of unrestrained cruelty. So I have showed you, number one, Nineveh has always been a wicked city. That's how it was born, Nimrod. Jonah's not going to like it spiritually. Assyria is the one that's been going on the outskirts of, of our country and probing and killing family and friends. Jonah is not too impressed with going to Nineveh, the people that are killing the very friends and families of his. Oh, but it gets worse. Is that not good enough not to go? But it gets worse. Nahum, I am not going to reread it, but you read the atrocities at Nahum. 
talks about. Nineveh was a corrupt city of blood. A serious cruelty is amply documented on unearthed cuneiform tablets. Assyrian kings even boasted of their cruelty. You are going to see, I'm going to read it to you, and then we're going to show you. Prisoners were impaled alive. They were flayed alive. They were beheaded or dragged to death with ropes attached to rings that pierced their bodies. They were blinded by the king's own hand and hung by their hands and feet to die slowly. Others had their brains beaten out or their tongues torn out and were left to bleed to death. This has got to be the, one of the most atrocious ones. Still others had their bleeding heads of the slain tied around their neck while waiting their turn to be tortured. One author states it this way, these atrocities are similar to the Saddam Hussein reportedly inflicted during his rule as president of Iraq. Goes to figure, they're of the same lineage. But it's the same lineage that did repent. Nahum also said that Nineveh was full of lies and robbery. Assyria deliberately deceived other nations. It would enter into binding treaties that it had no intention of keeping. Once the Assyrians gained the confidence of the other, another nation, they would break their treaty with it and demand tribute from its leadership. The word robbery means rend into pieces. It denotes a wild beast tearing its prey to pieces and connotes the type of deceit, violence, and bloodshed that Assyria used against the nations it conquered. Their prey departeth not means Assyria never stopped functioning like such an animal in plundering other nations. What was Nineveh like as a city? Well, we find that According to G. Smith, an archaeologist, the circuit of the inner wall is about eight miles. We find in the Bible that it takes about three days to walk around or walk through, depending on your understanding of that text. But regardless, eight miles. Captain Jones, a tri trigonometer, surveyed in 1854, he estimated that there was about 50 square yards per person. If there was 50 yards per person, the city Nineveh in and of itself would contain about 174,000 inhabitants. The issue is in Jonah chapter 4, 11, the city contains 120,000 persons who could not discern between their right hand or their left. Obviously, they're talking about children the population would be about 600,000 people. How many have ever heard of Rochester, Minnesota? Although I was not born there, praise the Lord, I did grow up there, and I remember seeing it finally hit 100,000, six times the size of Rochester. That is huge. 600,000 people. 
I told you about Nimrod. So I give you an idea. You saw what it might have looked like. You, you now know that it takes three days either to walk through it or walk around it. It's a big city. Genesis chapter 10, we gave you that. I'm give you more verses on there. It says, he was a mighty hunter before Jehovah. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before Jehovah. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, Kelneth, and the land of Shinar. From the land he went forth into Assyria and built Nineveh and Reboth, Ur and Kela, and resin between Nineveh and Kela. This was a city with multiple other cities, and Nimrod began them. Nimrod was a cruel and ruthless person. It is hardly surprising that life in the day of Nineveh would be filled with bloodshed and cruelty. You heard Mr. Gaiman read Nahum. They said there was so much cruelty, they would stumble over dead bodies in the streets. In the suburbs called Kayla and Rezin, Nineveh is understood as all of them. One of the kings of Nineveh, of Assyria, who lived in Nineveh, said this. We find it on cuneiform again. I built a pillar over against his city gate. I flayed all the chief men who had revolted. I had covered the pillar with their skins. Some I walled up within the pillar, some I impaled upon the pillar on stakes. And I cut off the limbs of the officers of the royal officers who had rebelled. Many captives from among them I burned with fire. And many I took as living captives. For some I cut off their hands and their fingers. And from others I cut off their noses, their ears, and their fingers. Of many I put out their eyes. I made one pillar of the living and another of heads. I bound their heads to posts round about the city. Their young men and maidens I burned in fire. Twenty men I, I captured alive, and I immured them in the wall of this palace. The rest of them I consumed with thirst in the desert of the Euphrates. As the Assyrian army arrived back in Nineveh from a successful campaign, this is what it might have looked like, according to historians. Its captors were well aware of the horrors that awaited them, for they were in for unthinkable suffering and cruelty. As the soldiers came over the horizon, there would be numerous lines of captives being led by cords that had hooks which were pierced through the nose or lips of their captors, of the, of the captives. Many could look forward to being blinded by the king of Nineveh himself, which we just read, who would use the point of a spear to do it. Other prisoners awaited impalement, being hanged by their nude bodies upon pointed stakes that were run up through the stomachs into the chest of their victims. Others still were whipped or beaten severely 
and then had their skin removed from their body while still alive. It is this fear factor that made Nineveh the great military machine that would march on another city and its inhabitants would surrender without a fight. You think? Say, well, that's just history. You know, one person can re recount history and talk about history. Well, let me show you from the tell I just showed you what they have found. This picture is Assyrian soldiers, which we didn't even talk about. But this is Assyrian soldiers forcing a Babylonian to grind his own family's bones to dust. Cruelty. Why are you doing this? This, this is almost something from some kind of rated XXX movie. It's so vulgar and nasty and violent. This is a picture of how they impaled their prisoners from above. Sometimes just dropping them on a big, long, pointed stick. Well, they hung there and then they used their skins to cover their city wall. How perverted and gross. How many are sick? How many want to be done with all this? This picture is engraved in their, this is them bashing their heads and ripping their tongue out, and then they let them there to die by bleeding out. It's one thing to talk about it, which we just did, but they made pictures of it as if it was a glory to their city. Here's a picture of them flaying alive their enemies. Literally. Flaying them from their foot up. Okay. Enough already. Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh and preach repentance. Are you kidding me? We know this garbage. We know they're wicked. You want me to go there? I wouldn't even go there with an AR-15. How many understand that? Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it. So not only, go to this great metropolis, this huge place. Yes, it's wicked. Yes, it has skins on their city walls. They have pillars of people's heads. It's like voodoo. Go there and preach the gospel. I dare say, all this knowledge, none of us would go there. And yet, we sit in our nice little pew and say, Jonah just was a disobedient dude. So not only is he to go to this city of horror, but he has a task to do. And that task is to cry against it. How many have ever seen any kind of movie where a rich guy 
finds his place into a biker's bar. How many you know what I'm talking about? It's like, you are out of place, dude. How many you know what I'm talking about? I'm not inviting you to watch these types of movies. I'm just saying we have all understand that picture, right? Well, this is ten times worse. Jonah is supposed to take the knowledge of his God gave him, go over to this repulsive city and say, hey guys, I'm condemning you. My God is condemning you to death if you don't change your wicked ways. Oh, how's that going to work? But he is the imperative that Paul, or that Paul, I love the New Testament, but this is Jonah. The final imperative in this series is arise, and then what do you do? Cry out. Condemn them. The combination of the verb to cry out with the preposition against has this idea of total disapproval and total warning. This is the command that God is giving to Jonah. The trip to Nineveh is merely a prerequisite to the main task of publicly, unequivocally expressing God's holy wrath against 600,000 people that act like that. Nina's wickedness had reached a critical point and divine intervention was required. It's been 1,700 years approximately. Over a 1,000 years for sure. When Nimrod started this place, and many, many thousands of years, but the point of the matter is this. God's long-suffering is perfectly seen. I've had enough. It's been thousands of years. But he says, I've had enough. Their evil has ascended before me. Whatever the case is, God's justice could wait no longer. Israel was also considered wicked, and her judgment was sure. The word evil has a broad range of meanings in the Hebrew. It can refer to not only to moral evil, but natural disasters, harm of injury, troubling times, negative emotions, divine acts of judgment. But this, this, this is gross evil. This is beyond the pale. Okay. Enough of the filth. So what does this have to do with us today? First of all, God does not change. And how he deals with evil is always the same. He will absolutely judge it and judge it severely. But he also is merciful and will give a way of escape. For us today, that escape is through his son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Secondly, how can they, the lost, hear without an obedient God-fearer? 
the principal applications are obvious. The reluctancy of many of us Christians is very similar to that of Jonah, although we may hate to admit it. As of yet, the text has not explained the motivation of Jonah to run away from God and his command, although it's coming, I can guarantee you. But here's what we can logically deduce as the similarities between Jonah and the Christians' hesitancy to faithfully obey the very God that they say they truly love. In a real sense, it's understandable why Jonah wanted nothing to do with God's plan. But although understandable, it was not biblical. And we are called to be faithfully obedient to His Word, no matter what our humanity may tell us. Do we? Do we not proclaim God's mercy through Christ to those who we think do not deserve His mercy? I think sometimes we don't. There is no way Hitler deserved mercy. That's not for you to choose. You're simply to, we are simply to faithfully obey. Let me ask you, was Hitler, could Hitler have been saved after all that he had ever done? Yes or no? Absolutely. You say, well, well, hold it. That's just ridiculous. He was so wicked and horrible, a spawn of Satan. Let me read a passage of Scripture for you. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. This is Paul talking to a church full of believers, telling them, this is what you were. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in, you, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince and the power of the air, Satan, and of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. Listen, we are no different. In a, in, we are in no different position than the Ninevites. Oh, but they were sick and gross, so is our sin. There's not this, okay, this sin outweighs that sin. If you think somebody else's sin is worse than yours, you've got a bigger problem than they do. Sin is sin. It's an atrocity against God. But God gave us a way of escape. Listen, none of us deserve salvation. Yet somebody was faithfully obedient to God and gave you the gospel. Amen? What if they thought of you? Well, I'm better than them and they don't deserve salvation. They didn't do that. That's why you're sitting here this morning. Do we proclaim God's mercy through Christ to those who we think do not deserve it? Let's be honest, do we? I would say sometimes we do, and that's sin. Secondly, do we proclaim God's, do we not proclaim God's grace through His Son's sacrifice on the cross for our incurable, incurable sin problem because of self-preservation? 
Now let me ask you, did Jonah, is it very possible that his motivation was, those guys are horrible, I am not going there, they don't deserve grace. Is that a possibility? Absolutely. Is it a possibility after seeing all the cuneiforms on tablets that maybe he didn't want to go because he didn't want to die? Is that possible? Let's see, it's me against 600,000 people. The believer willingly, the believer willing to lose his life has set his course on a heavenly treasure hunt. Long before the hour of his death, Jesus urged his disciples not to spend their lives pursuing money or acquiring possessions. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 through 21, don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal them. Store your treasures in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will be. Basically, is what or who do you love? Folks, how many of you have read the epistles of Paul throughout the New Testament? How many of you would agree that Paul lived in total abandon of his own body? How many Christians do that? Simply speaking, what is hindering us from being the faithful, obedient servant God has called us to? Oh, folks, in America, the distractions are many. Next week, Lord willing, we will learn how, about how God's calling demands complete abandonment. If we would follow Paul's life, it's like he had a death wish. Matter of fact, he was even left for dead once. And he got up and he said, I get Jonah, I'm going the other way. He didn't. He was stoned to death. They left him for dead. He st when they left, he got up. He turned and faced that city and he went and preached the gospel to the same city to the guys that killed him. Wow. By the way, from what we understand about Scripture, 600,000 people repented. The king himself, the king himself, <laughs> sackcloth and ashes. Totally, okay, you're going to remember this word for a long time. Totally humilified. Right? Totally humbled. Humbled by a great God. But we will never experience or see God work unless we say, Here am I, Lord, send me no matter what.
Do we? Are we the faithful, obedient servant that God wants us to be? Jonah, obvious, had a problem. It is unfortunate, but most people in our, most Christians never call their kids Jonah, but they live his life. How many understand that? They follow his example. Folks, we must be faithfully obedient servants of our God. Serve, love, and proclaim the gospel to others. Amen? Mr. Gaiman, can you close your word prayer, please? Just a moment, I'll have you stand, and we'll pray and be dismissed for the day. First, a quick announcement. Uh, we will be starting a child training group. Uh, having godly children doesn't happen by accident, and Scripture gives us a lot of direction there, so if that applies to you, it's something you might want to participate in. Uh, let me know here in the near future so we can take care of the logistics there. Please stand then. Let me pray and we'll be dismissed for the day. Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for Jonah's example, one of many in the Old Testament that are there for our instruction. I pray that we would be faithful to what you have called us to, regardless of circumstances, that we might live for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.